All right, so we're continuing our study of the seven churches of Revelation this morning. Do you consider yourself to be a tolerant person? It's kind of a tough question, really. Our society has become infatuated with tolerance, right? Of course, anyone who's ever thought much about tolerance has come to realize that those who make a big deal about it are only tolerant to the tolerant, right? They become intolerant to those who they deem intolerant. I will not tolerate your intolerance. It's kind of the attitude that we see a lot. Well, no matter how much the world wants to pride itself in being tolerant, it's always going to have its limits, right? You might tolerate the barking dog on the other side of the fence, but you're probably not going to tolerate the barking dog coming onto your side of the fence. A business might tolerate a tent nearby, but they're probably not going to tolerate a tent blocking the entrance. You know, so some have said that we've moved from an old tolerance into a new tolerance. And the old tolerance is reflected in the saying, I may hate what you believe, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. However, the new tolerance that has slowly crept into our society considers that statement intolerant, right? Tony Reinke said, the new tolerance eliminates all possibility of declaring something as wrong or sinful. To hate what someone believes is now manifest bigotry. And Don Carson added, the only thing that you are allowed to hate is intolerance, as they define it, which shows that the whole system in some way or other is logically self-defeating. So no matter what definition anyone uses of tolerance, they will have a built-in limit. Like whether it's written down or not, everyone has a line. Well, what about churches? Should a church be considered, should churches be tolerant? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. And how do we figure out what that line is? Well, unlike the world, we don't just make the lines ourselves. We go to God's Word. And the church in Thyatira was a tolerant church. And Jesus wrote to them about that. Before we see what he has to say, let me open us in prayer. God, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the words of Christ in this letter that we're studying this morning. And we pray that they would sink deep. And that this would be educational as well as transformational. And... uh, Lord, uh, this whole study, we've, we've, we're learning so much and continuing about how to be a godly, biblical, healthy church that Christ can commend. And we're trying to avoid all of these things that he, he's rebuking. And so we continue to ask for your help uh, to listen and to understand. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're starting in Revelation chapter 2. Verses 18, and we'll actually go finish chapter 2 today in this letter. Verse 18 says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So in this letter, Christ introduces himself first as the Son of God. That's not mysterious to us. We're very familiar with that phrase. And it might also be poking at the pagan culture of Thyatira, where Caesar would be called the son of God. But then he says he's the one with fire eyes. 
Well, later in verse 23, we're going to see how that connects with some of the things that Christ says. And it really points to his omniscience. He's the one who sees. He knows everything about us. His eyes or his knowledge pierce into the depths of our minds and, and our souls and our thoughts, our, our very inner self. There's nothing that gets past Christ. Furthermore, he has feet like burnished bronze or fine bronze. And this likely points to his splendor, his magnificence, maybe even his power and his purity. So the very beginning of this letter, we see Christ being introduced as someone who is divine, omniscient, and magnificent, which definitely is our Christ. And then he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he commends them in five ways. He says, I know your works. And the way that I read this is that he, works is like the header. I know your works, underline, and here they are. Right? Not that these other things that he lists, love, faith, service, patient, endurance, are separate from works. Those are the works that he knows. And so this church has something in common with the first church that we studied, the church in Ephesus. Right? This is not a lazy church that's sitting around doing nothing and just maybe hoping that things happen. But they also have something that Ephesus had lost. If you remember, Ephesus had lost their first love, and Christ commends them for their love. So this church had not lost their love. They, hadn't, they didn't have the wrong motivation for the works that they were doing. They didn't become a church that was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And like I said, we shouldn't be thinking of love as separate from works. It's under that header. All of these things are faith, service, patient endurance. Those are all good works. Love is a good work in itself. And it's one that is manifested inwardly and outwardly. And that's true of all good works. They are both inward and outward. I can love my neighbor by taking them to the emergency room in the middle of the night if they need that. And I can also love them by thinking well of them and secretly praying for them and inwardly appreciating them. There are many ways that we can love. And as we learned a few weeks ago, love is both affection and obedience. We should not think of love as something separate from works. And the same goes for faith, which is listed here. Because we might think of faith as something that leads us into good works, but faith itself is also a good work. We need not be so shallow. Often, it definitely comes in outward expressions. My faith can lead me to pray and to give and to evangelize and any number of other things. But there's also times when faith is kind of sitting there, maybe unseen. Right? Someone, maybe it's, uh, it's doing work, but it might not be the work that other people notice. You know, it might be keeping me from worry or anxiety or depression. It might be what gives me the strength to get up and face the day and whatever obstacles may be coming. And sometimes the work faith is doing is not noticed so much in what other people see us doing, but what in they don't see us doing. Or another way to phrase that is in what they see us not doing. Right? So somebody could say, well, you know, I don't really see your faith. 
which is a problem. We, don't, we should not want people to be able to honestly make that statement to us. But there's also those times when we're like, well, I'm not in bed to, right now. <laughs> well, I am not a crying blob of worry and despair. Well, I, I didn't run away from life and all of my problems today. So you may not see my faith the way that you want to see it, which is a problem that I need to address and God is still working on me. But it's still there. And it's still doing work that you might not see. And Jesus acknowledges their service, which is something that we expect to be in a list of good works. So I'm not going to really address that one so much, but he says, I know your patient endurance. Now, when I think of patient endurance, I think of our son Judah. And especially I think about when his little sisters were babies, especially his, the youngest one, Eve. And we would watch him sit there with her on his lap while she hit him and slapped him over and over and over, all over the head and pulled, you know, on his ears and his nose, his eyes, his cheeks, whatever. You know how babies do. And he would just sit there and take it. Not, you know, getting angry with her, not slapping her back, not yelling at her, not pushing her away. And why would he do that? Just patiently endure. That's what he's doing, right? Just patiently enduring. Why would he do that? Well, it's not because we told him that he had to. It's not because we promised him candy if he didn't. It's not because we threatened him with punishment, you know, if he didn't. It was because he loves her. And even though Jesus makes it clear over and over and over again, we've read so many times, that those who patiently endure to the end are going to receive a great reward. That's still not foundationally why we endure this life and following Christ in this life. We endure because we love. We love Him. We love one another. We love the lost in this world. But this world does not value endurance the way that Jesus does. I mean, look, look around. Why endure marriage? If it gets hard, if you don't like it anymore, just change things up. Why endure church? A church, if you get offended, you don't like it anymore, just change things up. Why endure confusion about your identity? We think about sexuality, gender issues. If you're confused, if you don't like it anymore, just change things up. Why endure a job if it's not bringing you the joy of heavenly ecstasy every day? If you don't like it anymore, just change things up. And so we look around and we see endurance gone. It's becoming a lost art. That's why divorce runs rampant and People forego marriage altogether, and people, we see people jumping churches every time they get offended, and people choosing tragically to harm their healthy bodies, and people treating their jobs like disposable cameras. But according to Christ, endurance is something to celebrate. It's a wonderful thing. It's a godly to hang in there. Just hang in there. Those who do will one day be told... You did it. Well, okay, what, what did I do? You sat there and took it. <laughs> you hung in there, right? Life, 
the world, Satan slapped you and kicked you and punched you and pinched you and spat on you. And you sat there and you took it. You endured. You didn't hate them back. You didn't hit them back. You didn't return evil for evil. You didn't take vengeance into your own hands. You didn't give up and run away. You stood your ground. You kept your faith and you endured. Well done, good and faithful servant. Patient endurance is what Christ did for us. And now we get to do that for him. But again, if someone came to us and said, hey, make a list of good works that Christians do. Would this be our list? I kind of, I doubt it. I don't think it really would. I think we would be like uh, giving and feeding the homeless and, and building houses in Africa and, and opening the door for elderly people and tipping the waitress and cleaning the church and mowing the lawn and, and all of these things. The list goes on. Maybe we would even add evangelism. But Jesus' list isn't like ours. Service we expect to see, but he's like love, faith, patient endurance. 75% of his list would probably get left off most people's list. But that's because we are always so focused on what we see with our fleshly eyes, and Jesus is focused on what he sees with his fiery eyes. And I said there was a fifth thing. They were commended for five things. So there's that list of good works, and then he says, your latter works exceed the first. The church's light is growing. That's a really good thing. And there are two ways for a church's light to grow. You know, Riviera Baptist Church is a light in our community. Like we come, and when we come together, we're like a spotlight. But then when we leave here, we're like these little individual flashlights that go out into our neighborhoods and all over the community and we're spread out. And so how do we grow our light? Well, one way to grow our light is to add more lights, right? Like if God gives numerical growth, then we get more flashlights that are in different places in the community, and then we come together, and the light that we have together is brighter. And that's great. But the thing about it is, well, we don't control the harvest, and so we pray for it, we strive for it, we want more people to come into the kingdom of God, to repent of their sins, and follow Christ. But we can only add more lights if God does that, if he brings the harvest. And so the other way that we can add, grow our light is to add more lumens. You know, God may or may not give us more in number, but we ourselves can get brighter. And that should be the sure thing, right? We should be growing in our own brightness, whether or not God brings more of a harvest. And it's a good thing for our latter works to exceed our earlier works, but that can happen by having more workers and also by working more. And those good works that we should be growing in are just like any good works. They're inward and outward. So we can ask ourselves these questions like, well, are we becoming more loving? Are we becoming more faithful? Is our faith itself growing? Are we serving others more? Are we dying to ourselves, considering others as more important than ourselves? Are we becoming more patient? Not only are we enduring better than we endured before, but are we prepared to endure more than we've had to endure before? Are we the kind of church that Jesus can say these things to? And can we also be the kind of church that he 
would not have to say this too in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So this is where the th church in Thyatira starts having a lot more in common with the church in Pergamum that we studied last week. Right? In Pergamum's case, they had a group, they had some who were holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And uh, we talked about that last week. This is a good, it's a good companion. So if you missed last Sunday's sermon, I encourage you, implore you to go listen to it. But in Thyatira, they had one specific woman who called herself a prophetess and was leading people astray. And it's unlikely that her name was actually Jezebel. It's more likely this is a reference to the Jezebel of the Old Testament, who was not an Israelite, but married uh, King Ahab and kind of became the power behind the throne. And so she had all this influence over him and led him to worship pagan, pagan gods and kill God's prophets and murder a righteous man named Naboth just to get his vineyard. She's a pretty infamous character, which is why you're, you don't walk around finding a bunch of women named Jezebel. Danny Aiken said, we name our sons David and Paul and our daughters Mary and Rachel, but we name our dogs Goliath and Nero and we name our cats Jezebel. But it's likely this woman's teaching was very similar to, if not identical, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans that we studied last week. Both were leading people into sexual immorality and idolatry. And I want to take a minute to talk about this issue of food sacrifice to idols, because if you're familiar with Scripture, then you would be rightly a little bit confused unless you have studied this issue directly more intimately. On a surface level, it can appear like the Bible contradicts itself about this issue of food sacrifice to idols, because we have passages like this, and then, but then we also have what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 8. Specifically, I want to read verses 4 through 8. So then, about eating food sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Mm, that kind of makes Jesus sound like God, doesn't it? So many of those things in the Bible. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So here we have Paul saying like, guys, food is food. And idols are nothing. They're literally nothing at all. And there's nothing inherently wrong with eating food, no matter what kind of a history it has. But there were some who had come out of that pagan world who had trouble decoupling that reality, that the food that may have been connected to the pagan world is still just food, no matter where it comes from. And they were not comfortable eating food that had come out of that, no matter what 
And so I've likened this to something kind of like yoga. You know, yoga has a lot of connections to the occult, all right? But there's not anything inherently sinful about putting your body in a downward dog position or, or other stretching and core workout positions that you may see used in a yoga class. Yet a lot of believers who come out of that world have trouble decoupling that reality. Stretching is stretching. Meat is meat. It, it's not... It's a little bit different, but there's a lot of similarities, too, to when Jewish believers come uh, to Christ and, and trying to move out of that old covenant and into the new covenant, and they have a lot of trouble with that transition. But in the case of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 8, we're talking about eating food separate from participating in the pagan festivities. Whereas in other places in Scripture, like where we're reading today, where we see food sacrificed to idols being condemned, it's a different story. It's kind of like the difference between maybe doing yoga at home, completely, you know, just on your own. You call it whatever you want. You say, I'm doing a stretching and a core workout routine, you know, versus doing yoga at the Hindu temple or in some new age group. Another example would be eating cake. Is it a sin to eat cake? Well, if you're being gluttonous, it is, but that's not what we're talking about. It's not inherently sinful to eat cake. But what if I'm eating cake while I'm attending an unbiblical wedding? Now we've changed things, right? We're talking about a different scenario. Cake is cake, stretching is stretching, meat is meat. But we can be doing something that is not inherently sinful in a scenario in which we involve ourselves in and promote or celebrate what God says is evil. So it would be wrong for me to be eating cake at that ceremony, at that celebration. But if for some, by some random series of events, I didn't, I had nothing to do with the ceremony, the celebration, the, the wedding or anything. Yet somehow a piece of that a cake from there ended up in my refrigerator. And then I'm at home and I take it out of my refrigerator and I sit at my table and I eat it. It's fine. It's just cake doesn't matter where it comes from. Now it's been separated from the context of a sinful festivity. So what could be happening here is that this woman, this Jezebel, might have been telling the church, misusing God's word, kind of like misusing what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians, saying, hey, you guys know what Paul said? Like an idol is nothing at all. Like, why are you so bothered by this? Just partake in the festivities. Have fun. Be free. But, of course, that's what Satan and all false prophets do. They love to use Scripture. They just don't love using it correctly. That's what Satan did when he tried to tempt Jesus. He spouted Scripture at him. And what did Jesus do? Well, he... he sent Scripture right back at him and put him in his place. And that's what we should do in these situations. That's what this church should have done with this woman, but it's what they failed to do. Rather than follow what both Jesus and Paul teach about church discipline, they instead chose to tolerate her. And what they should have done was exclude her. Well, what does Jesus think about all this? He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
So the first steps in church discipline, according to what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 18, the first step would be to go to her personally and address her unrepentant sin. And if that doesn't work to bring her to repentance, it would be get two or three others together and then go address her. And if that doesn't work to bring her to repentance, you bring it before the church. And if that doesn't work, then you exclude her from the church. And Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Now, we don't know if this means the church had done any of the steps that they were supposed to do, but we do know they had definitely not followed through with to the end. And Jesus was not happy about this situation. Because tolerating known, ongoing, unrepentant sin within Christ's church is not okay. Of course, that's a truth that's not accepted in our culture. Having the title, The Tolerant Church, probably sounds like a very good thing to most people. But it's kind of like when someone says something to you that you interpret as a compliment, but it wasn't meant that way. You're unbelievable. Oh, thanks. That wasn't a compliment. <laughs> but, <clears throat> of course, there are good ways of being tolerant. Um, that's part of patient endurance. However, tolerating unrepentant sin is, in a church is not something you want to be known for. It might give you a lot of brownie points in the world, but it puts you in the crosshairs of Christ. And so when churches in our city like to put up signs that say, all means all, here's the problem, all includes Jezebel. And that is a problem. Now, of course, when people say all means all, they don't actually mean all. It includes Jezebel, but it does not include those who would rightfully want to confront Jezebel about her sin. And then if she refuses to repent, to exclude her from the church. But what is Jesus' attitude? Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. There's a bit of irony in Christ's response. This is a woman who loves being in bed with other people. And he's like, I'll put you in bed. But it's not going to be for sexual immorality. It's going to be a sick bed. And he doesn't just threaten her, but also those who follow her. He mentions those who commit adultery with her, and he mentions her children. Now, it's unlikely he's talking about her biological children, but rather her spiritual children. And so those who commit adultery with her and her children could be the same group of people. And he says, I'm going to throw you into tribulation, and if you don't repent, then you're going to die. Or they could be two different groups of people saying one group is like those who are kind of flirting with her teachings, but haven't really jumped all in. They're going to get thrown into tribulation with the opportunity to repent. And those who have already just jumped, they're all in already. They're going to die. And he points back. This is where verse 23 is where it connects with his eyes of fire when he introduced himself because he says he's the one who searches mind and heart. He wants the churches to know how seriously he takes this. See, Jesus is not the spineless, gutless pushover that many of his followers and churches can become. He's like, guys, all I required of you is to cast her out of the church. But you wouldn't even do that. I'm going to cast her out of life. 
And he's going to judge us according to our works. Now we know, we know that does not mean that the basis of our salvation is in what we do. We know that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works that no man should boast. But we've also, we've studied this before. Believers are still going to be judged. True believers, not for their salvation, but for rewards. And, <clears throat> well, one of the works that we're given to do, that Christ has given his churches to do, is judgment. Oh, but I thought we weren't supposed to judge. Well, I'm not going to go into a whole other fleshing out of the teaching on accountability and church discipline. We've done that multiple times before, but we do need to go back because of this passage to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother or sister who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. So simply put, there's a biblical way that every church is called to judge within the church. It's one of the things that we are called to do, and it's dangerous to neglect it. Earlier in this same chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, a little leaven leavens the whole batch. And that's what would happen with this church. If they continue to tolerate this woman, it would destroy them. In verse 24, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. So the Jezebel issue was the only thing that he needed to rebuke and confront them about. And that's the burden that he's laid on them. And that phrase, the deep things of Satan, is interesting. People have had different ideas of what is meant by that. Some think it's used in a sarcastic way. It's kind of a reversal of maybe Jezebel's own little catchphrase. She might be calling people, come learn the deep things of God, which are actually, in reality, satanic. We wouldn't have to stretch our imaginations to understand that scenario since it's happening all around us. The New Age movement is full of people who are inviting others to come learn the deep things of the spiritual world, right? Come learn the deep secrets. People go into this stuff thinking, well, it must be good because it is real. It must be good because it is spiritual. And unfortunately, only some of them end up realizing later on, you know what? Not everything real is good and not everything spiritual is good. So our heretic radar should be going off big time when someone comes around claiming to have something secret and something new. Guys, God is not trying to keep secrets from us. I mean, there are definitely things that he withholds from us that he doesn't want us to know that we can't know yet, and that's fine, but I assure you that if he's keeping it from us, it's for our own good. 
Like, he didn't set up some kind of secret treasure hunt for us to stumble upon where we, we get to go discover, unlock new levels and find power-ups and, and find Easter eggs. We have everything we need. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for, uh, bleh, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have everything that we need. So how do followers of Christ, how, how do we become complete? How, how are we enlightened? It's through the word of God. And of course, in God's word, we discover that, yeah, we get the Holy Spirit. And we need him. And we also need God's people. We get the church. But we don't need a third eye. We don't need a new prophet. We don't need magic mushrooms. We don't need a medium, a channeler, a spirit guide, or an encounter with an extraterrestrial. We have everything that we need. But there's another way this deep things of Satan can be interpreted. And this one might actually be the better interpretation. You see, those who subscribe to the idea that you can live a, you should, fine, just go live a sinful life. And, and you're still a follower of Jesus. Don't repent. It's fine. Um, Robert Mounts, it, Mounts puts it this way. In order to appreciate fully the grace of God, one must first plumb the depths of evil. That's the, the thinking behind that. So the idea is that if you want to know best how amazing and how powerful and how wonderful God's grace is, then get saved from the deepest pit. Those are the ones who understand God's grace better than everybody else. Therefore, go throw yourself into the deepest pit and watch God work. It is faulty logic all the way around. You know what? You also appreciate your sight a lot more after you lose it. So gouge your eyes out and start appreciating. It doesn't make sense. It's the same kind of thing that Paul had to address in Romans, but the people who were like, oh, should we go on sinning so that God's grace can abound even more? And the answer was no. It's a lie from Satan to get sin into his Christ's church. And from a worldly perspective, I definitely was not saved from the deepest pit. But I assure you that when God gets a hold of you and you truly understand the gospel, you realize that we were all in the same pit to begin with. It's called death. It's called death. Like, we might have different experiences with sin, but just because I got saved when I was young and didn't go get into all, a lot of the things that some of you have gotten into, that doesn't, didn't make me any less dead before I was saved. We were all the same amount of dead before being born again. It's not like Hitler was 700% dead and Mother Teresa was 7% dead. We're the same amount of dead. And I assure you that when you are truly born again, you will spend the rest of your life growing in your appreciation for God's grace and His mercy on your soul. Because you realize you don't need to plumb the depths of evil because you start plumbing the depths of your own sinfulness. And you realize more and more how bad it was. So I can assure you, you don't need to plumb the depths of evil to fully appreciate God's grace. 
The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself, as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this all really brings to mind Christ's millennial reign, I believe. We talked about last week how Jesus would come back after the tribulation and then cast Satan into the lake of fire and then kill, as we saw in Revelation 19 and 20, kill all unbelievers before he begins his millennial reign, which we read about in Revelation 20 verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I don't know, it's almost like Christ is trying to prepare the church in Thyatira for the tribulation or something, no? But the rod of iron and earthen pots are also seen in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And we see that connection with Jesus identifying himself as the son of God. But then ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. And then I believe that the morning star is identified as Christ himself in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So what we see ultimately in this church is like all Christians and churches, a mixed bag. There's a lot of good, and there's also danger. It's easy to take our eyes off the road. It's easy for one person to sneak in and throw a church into chaos. James Hamilton put it this way, Jesus addresses the problem of imposters at several points in these letters. In Ephesus, they are dealing with those who call themselves apostles and are not. In Smyrna, they're dealing with those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And in Thyatira, they have this woman who calls herself a prophetess. Fakes cannot fool the one whose eyes are as a flame of fire. Fakes cannot fool Christ, but they can fool us if we're not careful. And that's why we have to exercise really good judgment, lest we find ourselves facing judgment the way that this church was. And we see in this letter the way that Christ has spoken about this woman Jezebel. I think Alan Johnson put it well. Our only safety from judgment is in repentance. Of course, that's the gospel. But when we find ourselves in unrepentant sin, the thing about it is we can't buy our way out. We can't fake our way out. We can't hope our way out. We must repent. Now, we can be a tolerant church in so many ways. This is a very good thing. To be tolerant. We can tolerate being hated, being lied about, being persecuted. We can tolerate the fact that the world is not going to live according to our standards. We shouldn't expect them to. 
We can tolerate differences of opinion about so many different personal things and about some things in the Bible as well. We can tolerate one another's flaws and struggles. We can tolerate imperfection. <laughs> we must, but we cannot tolerate professing believers refusing to repent. That is not the kind of tolerant that Christ wants his churches to be known for. It's not the kind of tolerant that we should want to be known for. But instead... We should desire to be known for what Jesus commended this church for, our love, our faith, our service, and our patient endurance. Because he, if we can do that, we endure to the end, then uh, we receive the bright morning star. So I hope and pray that that's, we can be known and be commended for the same things as the church in Thyatira and avoid being rebuked for what they had to be rebuked for.